All right, if you'll turn with me to Psalm 119, we'll pick up in verse 129, and we will finish out the psalm this time through. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. With my whole heart I cry. Answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose, They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules." Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways before you for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you 
and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come uh, to look at your word this morning and to examine more closely a portion of this psalm, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds, that you would um, be with me this morning. I pray that, that, that the words that, that I say today would be edifying and helpful and, and that you would work in all of us this morning to increase our love for you and our delight in your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of you know that over the last several summers, Chad has done a series of um, what he's called Summer in the Psalms, where he's gone through various psalms in the book as a way to have an ongoing sermon series in the summer that's not tied to a you know, specifically small book that it can be stretched out. It allows for other people to come in as we're going to have the summer. We're going to have some other um, pastors and preachers from the Presbytery and from surrounding churches come and, and give messages from the Psalter this summer. Um, so as we get back into it this year, I want to take a second and recap some of the things you might remember about the structure of the book of Psalms as a whole from the last, um, from the last few years. There are three things in particular that stand out in terms of the structure of the Psalms. The first one is that the main theme of the psalm, as Chad is, is apt to say, is blessed are those who take refuge in the king who reigns. This is a message that comes up again and again and again through the psalms. The second thing to watch for in the psalms, and this is true of all Hebrew poetry, is a Hebrew poetic device called parallelism. And that's the way that back-to-back lines or even back-to-back sections play off of each other either building on a particular theme or even presenting a contrast sometimes in order to communicate a specific idea. And then the third thing to look for is the category of psalm. We have hymns or praise psalms. We have laments. We have psalms of thanksgiving. Those are three of the the primary categories of psalms. And Psalm 119, as we've read through it this morning, checks the first two boxes, but it doesn't quite fit neatly in with any of the typical psalm categories of hymn, lament, or thanksgiving. Unlike many other psalms, it's not about a specific life situation. Instead, its focus is on what makes for a good, blessed, happy life. So in a way, it's sort of a a way to show us how to reorient ourselves, how to stay connected with God, but it does it from a different vantage point from many of the other psalms. And in doing so, Psalm 119 utilizes a specific poetic device that is sometimes used in Hebrew poetry. When we think of English poetry, we think of rhyming as being a key part of poetry. And if a song or a poem has a particularly complicated rhyme scheme, we think of it as being a better song or poem, at least structurally. But because of the way that the Hebrew language is structured, it is way too easy to rhyme. Like most words end in a, just a handful of, of endings. And so it's child's play to rhyme in Hebrew. So skilled Hebrew poets who wanted to show a level of care and craftsmanship in what they were doing looked for other ways to communicate that. And one way is what's called an acrostic. And an acrostic, each successive line of a poem starts with the next letter of the alphabet. So in English, you would have the first line starting with A, the second line starting with B, and so on. 
And acrostics bring a sort of visual parallelism that fits in with the, the semantic or the, the parallelism of meaning that we see in Hebrew poetry. There are multiple acrostics in the Old Testament. Psalms 34 and 145 are acrostics. The end of Psalm 31, the section on the virtuous wife, is also an acrostic. But Psalm 119 goes beyond just the basic acrostic. In this psalm, the author spends eight verses on each letter. The first eight verses start with the first Hebrew letter, the next eight verses with the next Hebrew letter, and so on. Those are the little section headings you might see in your Bibles, every eight verses, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit, all the way through. That's telling you that it's shifting to the next Hebrew letter. And on the slide behind me, I've highlighted the first letter of each line in green. It's really hard to see. We're still working out the colors with the screen here. It's a little difficult to see that. But if you look at the far right, because Hebrew is read right to left, this is, these are verses 1 through 8. And you can see that the first letter of each line is the same. And this pattern repeats all the way through Psalm 119. And you have 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, 8 verses per letter, and that's how we get 176 verses, because 22 times 8 is 176. If you look at, um, so the very structure of this psalm shows how much care and effort went into crafting it, because it's not just a, an acrostic, it's an eightfold acrostic. And as we read through the psalm this morning, there were a few words that should have stood out to you because you heard them over and over again. Law, statutes, commandments, rules, precepts, testimonies, word, promise. These are the eight key terms used in the psalm. And almost every one of those 176 verses contains at least one of those terms. And obviously each term has a particular meaning and connotation, but if we can chart them in a, a Venn diagram, um, like the color did not show up well there either. It's supposed to be a nice or, bright orange dot in the center to show where their meanings overlap, but it didn't come through very well. Um, but if we, if we consider their meanings and what, what these eight terms mean, they overlap and their common meaning is that they refer to God's communication to his people about his character and his faithful acts towards his children. In other words, they refer to God's self-revelation, his communication to us, his word. And just like there are eight verses dedicated to each letter of the alphabet, so there are eight terms used in Psalm 119. And one commentator noted that God's word is so rich that we can't adequately describe it using one term. And even the alphabet isn't sufficient. We have to go through it eight times without repeating a sentence, which is not always the case in some of the psalms. Think of the psalms that repeat lines like, his steadfast love endures forever, every other line. Psalm 119 doesn't repeat. 176 verses with no repetition. And this focus on God's word, God's communication, calls us back to Psalm 1, the very beginning of the Psalter, which opens by saying, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119, as a whole, shows us what that looks like, what it looks like to meditate on God's law day and night, and how we can walk through that. It dwells on the central theme of delighting in, studying, knowing, and relying on God's word. The goal of studying his word is not just to gain intellectual knowledge of its contents. The goal is to know the author of the word. John Calvin, whom 
Jacob mentioned earlier, famously describes the Psalter as an anatomy of the soul, showing us all of the ups and downs, the fears, the doubts, the troubles that we have, and the way that we can turn to God for comfort and for solace. But he also opens his Institutes of the Christian Religion by observing that we cannot come to an accurate knowledge of ourselves unless we first come to an accurate knowledge of God. And that knowledge can only be obtained through God's word. So as we look a little more closely at Psalm 119, keep in mind that the goal of this psalm is the same as the rest of scripture, that we would glorify and enjoy God. In other words, that we would take refuge in the king who reigns. And even though we've read through the entire psalm this morning, it's obvious that I can't zero in on the entire thing. We'd be here maybe until Chad got back from his sabbatical, and I don't think anybody wants that. So we're going to turn to to verses 129 through 136 and focus on these eight verses because they show the, the theme of the psalm as a whole in these eight verses. So picking up with 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The word wonderful there is a word exclusively used of God's actions or words and marks out what cannot be produced by human effort. That's what one commentator had to say about that. So these testimonies that the author refers to here are accounts of God's mighty acts in redemptive history. Events like God preserving Joseph's life in Egypt so that he could then provide for the rest of his family during the years of famine. Or the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt a few hundred years later. Or God providing manna for his people in the decades of wilderness wanderings. Those are the kinds of wonders, the kinds of divine actions in redemptive history of God showing his people his covenant faithfulness that the author has in mind. And then the second line of that seems a little strange. When you think about testimonies and the records of God's acts, therefore my soul keeps them. We tend to think of keep as meaning simply obey, but these aren't commandments to obey. The the verb keep in this context doesn't mean so much obey as guard or preserve. Remembering God's acts is key to remembering his character and therefore our relationship to him. This is why, for example, kings in Israel were supposed to start their reigns by copying out the entire book of the law for themselves by hand. Have. They were supposed to remember it. It's why Psalm 1-2 describes the blessed man as the one who meditates on God's law day and night, continually, over and over again, reminding himself of it. It's why the Israelites were instructed to talk with their children about God's works and God's, God's word with their kids day by day. It's why God actually commands them to write his commandments on the doorposts of their houses. We need to be reminded continually that he is Lord And he reminds us that consistently in his word. Conversely, there's a clear danger in forgetting God's word. And we see that play out in scripture. 2 Chronicles 34 records the reforms that King Josiah led in the latter days of the southern kingdom of Judah. But why were those reforms needed? What had happened? Well, at that point, the people, by and large, had neglected to remember to keep the record of the law in active the record of God's redemptive work for his people. In fact, at this point, they no longer had a copy of the book of the law in active use. Josiah had been king for 18 years when a copy of the book of the law was found in the temple. 
encased in the wall where it had been put several hundred years earlier when it was built under Solomon's reign. So think about that for a minute. The very law that the kings were supposed to copy down by hand when they started their reigns had fallen into such disuse that they didn't even have a copy left. So praise God that he preserved a copy of his word in spite of the negligence of these kings for generations and for centuries. And it goes to show that the, the way that Israel fell into moral failure during that time that we forget the works and word of God at our own peril. Verse 130, the the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. At first glance, this verse seems to have a bit of a note of condescension at the end when it mentions the simple. But consider the broader context. If you look back to verse 125, what does the psalmist say? It says, I am your servant. Sorry, it says, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. He's asking for understanding. He knows that he needs to grow in his own knowledge of the infinite God. And so when he says simple at the end of 130, the connotation there is not the the stupid or the naive or those who don't understand. It's the teachable. It's those who are open to learning more. And we see the psalmist showing that humility himself as he goes through. And where does he turn? So if we're going to be like the psalmist and grow in our understanding of God, where do we go? What do we look to? Maybe you'd open to Genesis 1, and you look at the creation narrative, and you would take comfort and and solace in God as the creator of the universe. Maybe you turn to other psalms, the ones that actually get into what it feels like to fear, to be afraid, to doubt, to wonder, to be in trouble. Maybe you look at the Gospels and the life of Christ. Maybe Romans, the closest thing in Scripture that we have to a systematic theology. But notice in verse 131 where the author turns. He says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. He longs for God's commandments as he wants to know God better. He wants to to grow in his understanding of God. Now, why would he do that? Why would he look to commandments in particular? I think there might be a couple of reasons. One is that laws tell us what is important to the lawgiver. And this is true not only in scripture, but in life in general, throughout human existence. So take, for example, if you're a baseball fan at all, you might know that this year in Major League Baseball, they introduced a couple of rule changes. They introduced a pitch clock and a specific set of rules regarding defensive alignments. I'm a very casual fan, um, but it seems pretty clear that the goal was to increase the pace of play, keep things moving, keep crowds more engaged, and if you've watched baseball, it kind of needs that. Um, And we see the same kind of thing going on in Scripture here, that when we look at the law, when we look at the specific commands of God, even in the book of the law, in in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, we can learn about his character just by observing the commandments that he gives. For instance, we know that he values the poor, the orphan, and the widow. In Leviticus 19, he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So he provided a way for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the outcast among the Israelites to have food, even if they couldn't provide it for themselves. 
Another thing we see about God is that he takes his holiness and his worship very seriously. We see that Aaron is judged in Exodus 32 for making the golden calf. And this is not a case of pagan idolatry. He's not making a a pagan idol. He made that idol to represent God himself. And God had just given the Ten Commandments, and (laughs) there they go, right away, disobeying the Ten Commandments and breaking them. And so God takes his holiness seriously. But we also see that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is a famous bit. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That proclamation to Moses occurs in the second half of Exodus, which is a, a kind of a miry part. It's in the middle of the giving of the law and a very detailed description of the tabernacle that the Israelites were to build. He also says this to Moses on the very same day that he's going to prepare two new stone tablets to replace the ones that Moses broke when he had come down the mountain and found Aaron having built the golden calf and the Israelites worshiping. So we see God not only declaring himself to be merciful and slow to anger, but showing himself to be those things by what he does. And the second reason that I think the psalmist looks to God's commandments here to learn from him is that when we read the Old Testament law, and this is something we can see more clearly from where we are now after the life and work of Christ than than the psalmist could see, is when we come across the commandments that clearly apply to us today, like the Ten Commandments, it's easy to see how those relate to us. But we also encounter in the law a lot of laws that do not apply to us. We know, for instance, that we are not supposed to offer sin offerings anymore. You don't see me or Chad or anybody up here week after week slaughtering animals and offering sacrifices like they would have done in the Old Testament. But we have to ask ourselves, why? Why don't we do that? There are a couple of of passages in the New Testament that talk about this. Hebrews 9, 1 Peter 3, 18. Is it because we've just moved beyond animal sacrifice? We've moved on to a higher form of religion at this point, and we don't don't need to deal with with blood anymore? Hardly. The reason we don't present sin and guilt offerings is because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for the sins of his people in full, once for all. He has fulfilled those commands on our behalf. And so if we were to offer sin offerings now, that would be stating, in effect, that Jesus' sacrifice for us wasn't good enough. That's why we no longer sacrifice animals. If, therefore, we want to understand and appreciate more fully the work that he's done for his people in bearing the punishment for our sins, in being that once-for-all atoning sacrifice, then it'd be a good idea for us to take a closer look at those sin and guilt offerings in the Old Testament and think about how he fulfilled them. Think about how those point to him, because they do point to him in a couple of ways. The need for a blood payment for sin and the frequency with which they had to offer those sacrifices pointed us to Christ. The the repetitive nature of them in particular indicates that they couldn't take away guilt. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to continue offering them. Hebrews 7 comments on that. So when we read these commandments and others like them, in the Pentateuch, in that book of the law, try to ask yourself how they point us toward Christ and our need for his atoning work. And 
And as the author moves on from longing for God's commandments, he says in verse 132, Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Contrary to what it might seem like at first, the psalmist is not trying to convince God to change the way that he deals with him. He doesn't approach God with the thought that God is predisposed to deal harshly or unkindly or uncaringly with him. He goes to God knowing that he is loved by God and that God in his great mercy is already predisposed to treat him graciously and kindly. This is exactly what the testimonies about God's previous acts for his people tells us about him. So when we think back to the Exodus and his provision for his people during those decades of wandering in the wilderness, the daily manna, we see his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness at work over and over and over again, even as his people were acting stubbornly, they were ungrateful, they were rebellious, and yet he shows himself to be gracious and to be predisposed to treating his people kindly. And the psalmist understands that, and he bases his prayer on that. And this is similar to what we've been looking at in 1 John over the past couple months, especially chapter 5. God, if you remember, tells us that we need to ask God for anything according to his will. To ask confidently because we know that we are his beloved children. We're not to approach him timidly or fearfully or in a doubting fashion, but boldly in full assurance of our standing before him. So when the psalmist asks God to turn to him and be gracious to him, he's asking God to do the very thing that God is inclined to do. And that is, he's praying to God according to God's revealed will. And when he goes to God, he says in verses 133 and 134, Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. In the verses leading up to this, he's been longing for God's command, expressing his love for God, his desire for God. But in this verse, he asks God to preserve him. He knows that he cannot rely on his own strength to obey God, but that whatever obedience he can offer God is a result of the gracious work of God in his heart. Question 35 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism states that sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The author of Psalm 119 shows us in these two verses that he knows his sanctification is ultimately God's work. It's not his own. And in his efforts to live in light of God's word, he knows that he is still vulnerable to two things, his own sinfulness and oppression of others. That's why he asks for God not to let iniquity get dominion over him and to redeem him from man's oppression. And I think in, these two, in this verse, in these two lines, we also see him longing for the age to come. The age when all impediments to obedience, both internal and external, will be removed. And we'll be able to glorify God and enjoy him fully, forever, without pain or sorrow or sin. And the psalmist continues... Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. If the opening of this verse sounds familiar to you, it's because it's a callback to the blessing that Aaron speaks over the Israelites in Numbers 6. Yet again, continuing the theme of the previous two verses, he's humbly appealing to the Lord, 
asking to be taught. He knows that he doesn't know everything, and so he wants to grow in knowledge. But note that he doesn't want to grow merely in the knowledge of God's commands. He wants, he needs to feel God's own presence. That's why he asks for God to turn his face towards him. He doesn't just want to hold God's commands in memory and be able to recite them at will. He wants God to turn his face upon him, to look upon him favorably as his heavenly father with the same fatherly love that formed the basis of his request back in verse 132 when he asked God to turn to him and be gracious to him. And at the close of this section, he ends with, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He's weeping because of this. And I, I, I can think of two reasons why he might have been moved to tears. One, these could have been tears of anger at people who were stubbornly unrepentant and rejected God and his ways. It would have been fair, for example, to feel righteous indignation at those kings and priests who for generations had failed to copy and read and teach the law of God to the Israelites that led to the reforms that Josiah needed to, to do. It'd be fair to be, to be upset about that. It's also possible that the psalmist was shedding and weeping tears of sorrow because he knows that those who don't obey God are showing that they are still dead in their sins. Think back to 1 John, again, that one of the ways in which we know that we are saved is that we keep God's commandments. And if you don't keep God's commandments, then the pattern of your life is not one of repentance and faith and growing in sanctification. That is an indication that you're outside the kingdom. And I think that those tears could be tears of sorrow. In either case, the psalmist is deeply concerned because people are not following God's revealed will. The word law that he uses there, people do not keep your law, sometimes clearly refers to the legal code found in the Pentateuch, all those commandments in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the Hebrew word for law, Torah, also means instruction. And sometimes in Scripture it is used to refer to the entire Old Testament, the entire written word of God. We even see the word law used this way in the New Testament. Matthew 5.18 Luke 16, 17, John 10, 34, 12, 34, and 15, 25 all show the word law being used to refer to the entire written word of God. And that's the primary use of the term law in Psalm 119. The psalmist knows that God's word shows us the only way to true happiness or blessedness, to true knowledge of and communion with God. And he knows that everyone needs it. And once again, we see his concern that people keep God's word. If we're going to obey the commands found in Scripture, which we absolutely should, we have to first know what Scripture says. And if we don't know what it says, then there's no way we're going to know how to live. And so part of the obedience is the keeping, the remembering of what is in God's word. So again, the main theme of this song is that God is to be known and cherished by means of his word. Question 88 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments and prayer, 
all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. The word is a primary thing that God uses to communicate to us the benefits of redemption, to communicate to us who he is and how he has worked in the lives of his people. So we need to be careful not to neglect it in our daily lives. Quick show of hands, if you, this is not a time for judgment. How many of you have ever started a Bible reading plan for a year? How many of you have ever faltered and, and stopped your Bible reading plan part of the way through a year before finishing? Pretty much everyone, right? We've all done that. Um, I've done that. I've faded. I hit the second half of Leviticus or Exodus or, I'm sorry, second half of Exodus or Leviticus or the genealogies that open First Chronicles, nine chapters full of names of people that we mostly don't know. It's also hard to keep going when you get to all those commandments about how the priests are supposed to deal with mold growing in houses and what kind of mold it is and how long the mold has been there and whether it's been treated and, and all of that. And all the instructions about the tabernacle, about blue and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. But every part of God's word was included for a reason and tells us something about him and his plan of redemption for his people. For the more difficult sections of the Bible, the harder to understand, a good study Bible can help because they can show us how those sections point us forward to Christ and relate to God's redemptive plan for his people. But above all, we must continue to read, to study, to learn, and finally to remember God's character and redemptive acts found in his word. So if you started a Bible reading plan this year and and stopped, start again. Start now. Don't wait until January 1st. Either start from the beginning or pick up where you left off. And Chad, at the beginning of every year, frequently reminds us that if you, you have to have a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're not going to follow through with it. And I've found that to be true for myself. But don't, and I repeat this, don't feel that the only way to read the Bible is by getting through it all from cover to cover every single year. Psalm 1 does not say... Blessed is the man who reads the Bible through every year following the Robert Murray Machine reading plan. It says, blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. Consistent, careful, thoughtful reading of the whole counsel of God is what we're after. Not tying ourselves to a specific timeline. So make a plan, take up and read. And by reading, come to know God more and more clearly for who he is. And there are lots of plans out there. There are plans that, that Christy and I have done. One of the, the best plans we ever did was one that took us, was designed to take just over two years to complete. So it wasn't a read through the Bible in a year. We didn't get to check that particular box that year. But the goal is consistent reading of God's word. And the reason that we study, that we read it over and over and over again, is to come to know the Son of God, the word who was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. He is the focal point of the Bible, the focal point of the plan of redemption set forth by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in eternity past. The better we know God, the more comfort we find in him, whether it's financial hardships, job uncertainty, the rigors of everyday life, medical issues, anything that is causing us to to be fearful, to wonder what is going to come next in life, he wants us to take refuge in him. And if we read the Bible and don't take refuge in him, then we've missed the point. I had the privilege of taking a Hebrew reading class um, when I was in seminary. I took it off campus at another, at another university. And there was a graduate assistant leading that class. 
And he knew his Hebrew way better than I did, better than I will ever know it. And so we were working through parts of the Old Testament, and, 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 that, and so his, his entire life was dedicated to studying Hebrew and to studying other ancient languages to get better grasp of Hebrew. And so the, the main text, of course, was the Old Testament. And I forget exactly what passage we were translating. It was something relating to the patriarchs in Genesis. And we're reading through it, and, and we're discussing the, the Hebrew there. And he stops and looks at us and just said, and there were probably two dozen of us in the room, and just said, and this is interesting at all, but nobody actually believes this. And I, I had no reason before that point to think that he was actually a believer. But when I heard that, I was, I was kind of shocked by that, because I thought, I believe that. And I know that the guys that came from seminary with me to class today believe that this is true. And so this guy was dedicating his life to understanding how to translate the Bible, the content of the Bible, knew it better than I would have known it, but he missed the point. And the point of the the Psalter is that we take refuge in the king who reigns. We remember his testimonies. We remember who he is. We think about his commandments. We think about his statutes. And we can take comfort in them, not because we fulfill the law ourselves, not because we obey his commandments, and that's not what brings us comfort. What brings us comfort ultimately is that Christ has fulfilled those commandments on our behalf, that we have salvation in him, and that we can rely on God's love and mercy and grace in our lives. And then him, we find peace and delight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word, for the the parts of the word that are, are easy to grasp, and I thank you for the parts of your word that are harder to grasp. I thank you that you have given us such ready access to your word. I thank you that you have preserved your word down through the ages for us and that we have the privilege of reading and studying. And I pray, Father, that you would work in all of us to encourage us more and more to read, to study, to think, to remember, to consider. And in all of that, to consider how every bit of your word points us to Christ. Because it is in his name that we pray. Amen.